Aha, here we go. Judge not that you, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Is uh, part of the Jewish law, part of the Jewish Torah, um, but then he doesn't just say you shall not commit adultery, he intensifies it by saying do not look at another woman with lust in your eyes or you will have committed adultery with her in your heart. And you sort of look inside your heart and you think, yeah, that's kind of what's going on when I do that. And, and uh, Jesus uh, takes so, uh, something from the law that says you shall not murder. The law says that, but he intensifies it. He doesn't just say you shall not murder, but he says you shall not hate your brother because if you do, you have murdered your brother in your heart. And I look inside my own heart and I think, yeah, that's kind of what's going on when I do that. So in many ways, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and all of Jesus' moral instruction uh, is sort of this Torah intensification, this intensification of the law. So... What are we meant to do with this intensified law, this intensified Torah? 
Well, historically speaking, there have been a couple of very common approaches. The first one simply says, well, we better get on with it then. We better follow all of these rules very, very closely and carefully in order to earn God's friendship and God's favor. And people who do this, as we'll explore this a bit more later, but, but people who do this tend towards this sort of uh, very rigid, unbending rule following, where they become rather self-righteous and judgmental and condemning of the world around them. Look, you're not following the rules properly, so you don't have God's favor, but I'm following the rules, and so therefore I have God's favor. It tends towards that sort of legalism. Um, and then the, the other tact uh, is c completely the opposite way. It says, no, 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 no. You're not meant to. Jesus is setting these impossibly high standards. He doesn't really expect any of us to really follow these rules. In fact, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount and all of his other moral instructions are to show us, to demonstrate, it's like an object lesson, it's an illustration. The Sermon on the Mount is an object lesson, an illustration of how none of us can actually follow all the rules, uh, and he doesn't expect us to, and, and it shows that actually what we need, we all need a savior. So historically then, these are two very well-known approaches to Jesus' moral instruction, um, especially these teachings gathered together in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. So which is it? Is it a set of rules we're meant to follow very rigidly and carefully, or is it actually a, an illustration, an object lesson? Uh, to demonstrate how we can't follow the rules. We'll explore both of these. Um, I think there are a lot of things in our culture which would push us towards the first reading. Uh, I was just talking to a friend the other day who was saying that here in New York City they have felt this tremendous pressure to establish themselves, to prove themselves, to earn their seat at the table. They were saying that sometimes even at a group of friends or a group of colleagues, they sat at the table and just literally coming up to the table, a literal table, wondering, can, do they have the right to just pull themselves down next to these people? Do, do they have to earn the right to be at the table? So I, I, I know many of you here in the city, you feel this every day in, in your jobs, at work, even in school, there's this high pressure, right? And then, of course, this is compounded by our social media culture, which you know how that works. You've got to put out stuff that meets with everyone's approval and gets all the likes. And if someone puts out something that isn't, you know, breaks one of the rules, then everyone's got to jump on them, right? You've got to shame them. And, and you've got to shame, you've got to, it's important you all join in because that's one of the key ways that you signal your virtue to the rest of the world. Of course, it's only a matter of time before you break one of the rules. And when you do, there's really no way back, is there? Because if you delete that tweet, you know what happens? That's just evidence of your guilt. If you apologize, uh, there's more, more evidence and admission of guilt. And, and this is how legalism works. You use all the rules to prop yourself up and put other people down until, uh, until the rules are turned on you. So, yeah, thinking of New York City culture and, and you think about the social media culture, and there's a lot of things in our culture which would push us to this reading of Jesus' moral instruction, which would say, yeah, this is, this is all about this is all about the, the way we are going to earn our place at the table. The good news is, is that Jesus actually builds into this Sermon on the Mount um, a, a protection against this sort of reading of his moral instruction, the, against this idea that, that this, is, this is how you would earn your seat at the table. He makes it completely illegitimate. And, and here's what he says against this sort of uh, what you might call a weaponized uh, uh, use of, of Jesus' teaching. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Um, many of you will have seen the Golden Globes this year. I've talked about it with a few of you. Uh, the Golden Globes were hosted this year by uh, this guy, Ricky Gervais. Um, great photo, isn't it? Uh, and uh, he starts out by saying, this is the last time I'm doing this, so I don't care anymore. And, and then he says, no, I'm just joking, I never did. Uh, and then he, he finishes up his introductory monologue like this, uh, and I'll do my best uh, Ricky uh, Gervais impression. He says this, he says, Apple roared into the TV game with The Morning Show, a superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. Well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for in China, unbelievable, Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a platform to make a political speech. You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, so, so if you win, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god, and well, at that point, they had to beep him out. And at that point, he's no longer joking. He's actually being deadly serious. And uh, some people were offended by this, but actually most people seem to really enjoy this. And there have been all sorts of articles out there, including one in Psychology Today and, and other places like that, sort of analyzing why were people reveling in what Ricky Gervais was doing. And I think if we put Ricky Gervais's words alongside what Jesus is doing here, well, they might shed a little light on each other. Um, so, of course, Part of it is uh, that you, they were enjoying watching Ricky Gervais call out the Pharisees, the modern-day Pharisees, the Pharisees of our day. Look, the Pharisees were the self-righteous, virtue-signaling hypocrites of Jesus' day. That, that's what they were. And so, of course, one of the reasons why they so enjoyed watching Jesus go up against the Pharisees, and they never did, I mean, they keep coming at him, and he keeps knocking them down. They keep coming at him, and he knocks them down again, uh, and they never do learn. But uh, the, one of the reasons why they, the crowds enjoyed watching the, these confrontations was obviously because he was calling out their utter hypocrisy. At long last, someone's doing it. And so Jesus has his whole collection of absurd uh, word uh, pictures, each one more absurd than the last, uh, which are all aimed at calling out this kind of, of hypocrisy. Um, so, so here are some of them. Uh, he, he says to them, look, you're like whitewashed tombs which are full of dead men's bones. He's saying, yeah, you've, they've been adorned, they look nice and clean on the outside of these tombs, they're beautiful, but on the inside you're just a container for a rotting corpse. You guys are like that. Uh, then he says, uh, actually, you're hypocrites, you clean, you're like people who clean the outside of the cup, but inside the cup is still filthy, but you keep drinking from this filthy cup. Uh, and then he says, you're like people who, who strain the gnat, and then you swallow the camel. You see, each, each picture is more absurd than the last. You strain the gnat, but you swallow the camel. Uh, and then finally, he's here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, you, you've got this, you, you've got a, you're trying to take the speck out of dust out of your brother's eye, what are you doing? You're a total hypocrite. Look at the, take the plank out of your own eye first. And so all of these sayings sort of go together 
and they're all aimed at shedding light on the, the, absurd, the absurdity of the images, sort of sheds light on the absurdity of the, 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 the hypocrisy. But it's more than that. It wasn't just that they were enjoying watching the hypocrites get called out with Jesus' uh, Jewish humor. It goes deeper than that. These people were tired and they were burdened. They were weary and they were heavy laden. And Jesus points to the source of this burden uh, and their weariness. And he says this, he says, look, it's these ruling elites, this ruling class, they're, 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 they're putting this, this burden on you. Uh, and he says this, they tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. I like the New Living Translation, it says they crush people. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. See, these were the people in their culture, as we have ours today, these were the people in their culture saying, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to establish yourself. You have got to earn your place at the table, and we're going to tell you what you have to do to earn your place at this table. And so you know what these crowds reveled in? They reveled in watching Jesus smash that culture of burden and heaviness and judgment and shame. They reveled in watching Jesus smash that culture of constantly having to establish yourself and prove yourself and earn your place at the table and get those likes and signal your virtue. They were tired and Jesus gave them rest. And the point about the planks and the specks is, is to Jesus is saying, look, this is, this is a loser's game. I mean, it's, a, it's a game our culture really seems intent on playing. But Jesus says this is a loser's game and nobody ever wins. Jesus' moral instruction is not saying, look, here's, here's how you win God's friendship. Here's how you earn your place at the table. Jesus' assumption behind all his commands is that we have God's friendship. God loves us. All of us are invited to a seat at the table. And if you continue to live under this burden, that kind of burden, you, you, what, what ends up happening is you end up putting these kinds of burdens on other people as well. And um, it's, it's difficult to live that way. And, and you become really quite a difficult person to live with as well. We all do this at different times with different people. Jesus wants to set us free from that. Can we revel in his words today? Well, okay then, if that's the case, uh, then it must mean that the second reading is right. The Sermon on the Mount is an object lesson. It's an illustration. For what? It's an illustration and an object lesson for perhaps uh, to show us that we can't follow all the rules and that we need a savior after all. Well, if, if that's the case, then the only trouble is, if, if that's really what Jesus' whole intent with the Sermon on the Mount is, then um, we, we might think that Jesus would end his sermon in a very different way than he does, because he could have ended up saying this. He could have said, look, I know these are impossibly high standards, and none of you are ever going to be able to follow all of these rules. I'm not expecting you to, really. Um, so I, I'm really using this as, a, as an object lesson for you, so you know that you need me as a savior, because I am the perfect rule follower. Is that, is that really what we think of Jesus, the perfect rule follower? Right, I'm the perfect rule follower, and I will be able to offer the perfect sacrifice for your sins. Right? But Jesus doesn't end this sermon that way. 
He, he doesn't. This is what he actually says, uh, which Kyle read for us earlier. Therefore, if anyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Can you imagine? He just ends with this dire warning. Now it seems like we better go back to following the rules very rigidly and legalistically, right? Better get back to it. So which is it? You, you know, I've, I've, it's been interesting. There have been occasions, I've shared before how sometimes I've gone into churches and I've, I've um, shared the message for that morning and, and, um, and then the pastor comes up behind me feeling I haven't really given the gospel. The, the, the version of the gospel being, uh, don't worry, you can't follow all the rules, but Jesus did it for you, right? That's the entire gospel in, in some people's perception. And so I haven't done it. So they come up and give the gospel you know, which I didn't give. The irony is, if they had been sitting on the hillside in Palestine in first century Israel, right, that day, listening to Jesus, they would have had to come up behind Jesus and go, well, well, you know, don't worry about this house crashing stuff. Let, let, let me tell you what he really meant to say. Let, let, me, let me just cor correct Jesus. He, he's forgotten to give you the good news. I don't think we're supposed to turn the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' moral instruction into a moral, into a, a sort of a, uh, an illustration or object lesson as to why we can't follow the rules. So let's take a closer look. I want to finish up by taking a closer look at this metaphor of building a house, right? He, he talks about the wise man builds his house upon the rock and then the winds come and it stands and the foolish man builds his house upon the sand and the whole thing comes crashing down. So the word house has a very particular significance. Um, some of you will remember when Jesus was a boy, uh, they go into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and after Passover, do you remember this? They, they, they go and there's this caravan, this long trail of people heading out with family and friends, going back to their hometown, they're leaving Jerusalem, and uh, they, they think that Jesus is with aunt so-and-so or, or his cousins or something, and, and they're, they're traveling for a few days and then they're like, wait, where is he? Uh, is it, I, thought, I thought he was with aunt so-and-so. No, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. And, and so they're like, okay, everyone turn around. So they turn around, they go back into Jerusalem, frantically looking for him all over the uh, city, and then they track him down to the temple. By the way, the temple, and this is really important, we've said this before, but this is so important to get into the mindset of the Jewish people. The temple was not just a center of religious life, it was a center of political life, it was a center of their economic life, and it wasn't just a center of their national life, but it was also the center of the universe. Because this is where heaven touched earth, where God made his presence in a, in a special way, or had done in the past. And so Jesus, when they find him in the temple, Jesus says, did you not know I would be in my father's house? And the house there that he's referring to, of course, is the temple. Okay, let's leave Jesus' boyhood and go to Jesus' final week. Right, we're now in Jesus' final week, and he bursts into the temple, and he turns over the money changers' tables, and he drives out the money changers and the, and the, and the market and the animals and the livestock and all of that, and he shouts... It is written, 
My house shall be a house of prayer. And the house he's referring to there, of course, is the temple. And throughout the Old Testament, uh, the temple is referred to as the house of the Lord. Jesus is concerned here. Jesus is concerned here for the life of the community of Israel which revolved around the temple. His, his warning is not do this or otherwise you lose your salvation. Do this or you lose your place at the table. Do this or you're going to hell. He's concerned with Israel's future. He didn't need any clairvoyant powers, but a bit of political insight, a bit of historical knowledge to be able to predict what would happen if Israel didn't participate in his revolution of love that we've been talking about throughout this series, his revolution of love, and they, they went instead for a revolution of violence. If they, he knew what would happen if they didn't pray, Our Father. If they didn't do unto others as you would have them do unto you, if they didn't love their neighbor, turn the other cheek, love their enemies, all the passages we've been looking at over the last few weeks, he knew what would happen. Rome was going to destroy them. And he's saying, you fools, you are building your house, the house of Israel, on sand. And they don't want to know. They don't want to know. And so they crucify him. And in AD 70, the temple is ransacked and destroyed, the center of Israel's life gone. And in 8120, Israel is sent into a nearly 2,000-year exile. Think about Jesus' instructions in light of that reality. I'm not sure Jesus' concern is how we can earn our individual seats at the table or how we, can fail to, or how we fail to earn the seat at the table ourselves. Tangentially, I suppose we can go in that direction. But honestly, that seems more like an imposition on the text of Jesus' words, like, like we're trying to import our own Martin Luther Reformation moment into Jesus' sermon. Does Jesus need Martin Luther at this point? <laughs> I think, think about his instructions. He's inviting us to think about others, to think about our neighbor, to think about our enemies. Once again, to hop back to our series in Acts, he's inviting us to think communally, to think collectively about our lives together. He's not saying, here's how to earn your seat at the table, or here's why you can't earn your seat at the table, and I have to do it for you. Here's how you can earn your personal salvation. Here's why you can't earn your personal salvation. He's not saying, here's how to earn God's friendship. Here's why you can't earn God's friendship. No, the invitation is to fulfill our vocation together. And, and all of these, these things that he, we've been studying is this wonderful invitation. He says, look, here is how we can be God's people. And as God's people, we can manifest God's kingdom here. And we can manifest God's kingdom now. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, it's um, just natural that we think about ourselves at the center of this and, and uh, we tie it to our own special place at the table. And, and we're, we're relieved. We're relieved to know that we, you invite us, everyone from the east and the west, to come and take our place at that banquet. You invite us. We don't have to earn that place. We don't have to buy your friendship. So, Father, we pray that we would do everything we can to embody, to manifest, to make clear your kingdom, the kingdom that we're waiting for, but which you invite us to manifest and embody here 
and now. And may that begin by us extending the same grace you show us to each other. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.